Welcome back to the finale of our fall midweek Bible study. Uh, you know, there seems to be something about the number three, doesn't there? You know, it, it starts early in our lives when we read about the three blind mice and the three little pigs and Goldilocks and the three bears. And who could forget the three little kittens who lost their mittens and they began to cry? Well, as we get older, uh, right, we learn how the American Constitution promises us three good things, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, theologically, of course, we think of God's triune nature as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And perhaps all that contributes to the old saying that good things come in threes. And we'll see something of this rule of three, as it's called, in this week's fall finale as we explore together a party, a promise, and a prayer in 2 Samuel 6 and 7. These are three good things, right? Who doesn't like a good party and a good promise and a good prayer? And uh, before we get to those three good things, however, we start out with a just judgment in 2 Samuel 6 verses 1 to 11, a just judgment. And you'll remember from last week, Perhaps that God has fulfilled his promise to David as after a decade kind of on the run, he, he's recognized as the king of a united Israel, both north and south under David's reign. And, and then David wins victories over the Jebusites, uh, dislodging them from Jerusalem and over the Philistines twice in the valley of Rephaim. And a after this long, dark period under Saul, now it's high times under King David. High time. So the victorious king decides to assemble 30,000 men, chosen men, and have them accompany him to bring the ark from its current location in Baal, Judah, up to the new capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a parade of less than 10 miles, and everything just seems to be going great, right? We're told in verse 5 that David and all the house of Israel were making merry. They're celebrating. They're playing before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They're, they're worshiping all out before God with their voices and with their instruments. And, and the army of 30,000 chosen men has now sort of morphed into a band, it seems like, for this occasion. But the discerning reader notices also a huge ominous cloud that is overshadowing this celebration, and it's found in verses 2, 3, and 4. There we are reminded that the ark of God is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. As the ESV study Bible says, the ark was the visible sign of the holy presence of the Lord, and the ark was also the focal point of God's actual presence among his people. So it needed to be treated with great reverence. But we're told that the ark was being transported on a cart, which was a big, huge no-no, right? A faithful Israelite who knew their Bible would be cringing at this story because they'd know that Exodus 25 commands that the ark not be touched by human hands, but instead that it be transported by poles inserted through rings. And they would know that Numbers 4.15 commands that the Kohathite priests were to handle the most holy items, including the ark, and that they must not even touch the holy things, lest they die. 
lest they die. And, and they would know that Deuteronomy chapters 10 and 31 specify that only Levitical priests were to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And if they knew their recent history, just a few decades earlier, they would know that when 70 of the men of Beth Shemesh looked into the Ark in a forbidden way, the Lord struck them down. So you see, it didn't matter how new and shiny the cart was, they were breaking God's commands in mishandling this most holy ark of God. And as the faithful Israelite reader is kind of cringing their way through it, it happens. The oxen stumbles, the cart tilts, and Uzzah directly takes hold of the ark to steady it. And instantly, God strikes Uzzah down because of his error. And he died there before the ark of God. Touching the ark was a direct violation of God's clear and repeated commandment. It was a just judgment, notice, because of his error, which started really way back with not having Levitical priests carrying the ark on poles as God commanded. It was a striking reminder to them and to us that the Lord is holy and must be approached only as he is revealed in his word, a just judgment. Well, how does David react? At first, he's angry because the Lord has burst forth against Uzzah, just as the Lord had burst forth against the Philistines in the previous chapter. Maybe like some of us, maybe we can identify with this, David initially did not like God's judgmental ways. We will never grasp God's judgment, I think, without grasping God's holiness and our sin and how those two interact. David was angry, but he was also afraid of God. So much so, he didn't want to continue trying to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. So they kind of parked it at a nearby house uh, belonging to Obed-Edom. And for the next three months, this guy and his whole household are blessed by God in in unspecified ways. But you you see God's presence, it, it can bring Not just judgment, as it did to sinful, disobedient Uzzah, but blessing, as it did to Obed-Edom. And when the news gets back to David about how it's going with Obed-Edom and the ark, he, he decides to resume the parade, but with much more care this time. After the first six steps, you see they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. They dedicated the trip to God's purposes. And notice, too, in verse 13, the ark was no longer on a cart. Uh Uh-uh. It was now being carried as God required. 1 Chronicles 15 tells us this second time around, David called on consecrated Levites who carried the ark on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded. They, They knew better. They knew what to do. And David acknowledges there in 1 Chronicles that the first time around, The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. David realized it had been a just judgment. Then we get to the first of our three good things. The party begins. Uh, It's marked by jubilant joy. David danced before the Lord with all his might. He's wearing a linen ephod, just a simple robe. and He and all Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with 
shouting or rejoicing and, and the sound of the horn. And, and as the ark entered Jerusalem, King David was leaping and dancing before the Lord, perhaps some kind of expressive, whirling sort of a, a dance, joyful and, and, and appropriate fear of God in handling the ark properly. And joy in the Lord characterized true worship, appropriate fear of God, reverence, and Joy in the Lord characterized their true worship. And the ark was put in its new place. Uh, David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And then David blessed the Israelite people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he gave them all, notice every single one of them in the multitude, men and women alike, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Love those raisins. I mean, what's a party without some good food and cakes, right? And then the people all took their delicious party gifts and headed to their homes. And David did the same. But when he got to his home to bless his household, there was trouble waiting for him there. Right? His wife, Michal, here described tellingly as the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David with biting sarcasm on her lips. How the king of David, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, we had been told earlier that as the parade came by the palace, Michal had come out and looked out a window and had despised David in her heart for his exuberant leaping and dancing before the Lord. She didn't see and she definitely did not enter into heartfelt worship. But instead, what she saw was her husband not dressed and not acting in what she considered a proper kingly way. Mikau's question, what were you doing out there dancing in a simple linen ephod? David's answer, I was celebrating. I was making merry before the Lord. You know, the Lord who, who chose me above your father and all his house. Uh, you know, the Lord who appointed me as prince over Israel, who are the people of the Lord. That, that's who I am. I'm a worshiper of Yahweh. And, and with your attitude, you know, you're going to see me doing even more abased and contemptible things than this. Mikal, uh, worship, it isn't a performance for people. It's devotion to the Lord. And those female servants that you're worried about, they know what I was doing, and they're going to honor me for it. That's what a celebration or, or party honoring the Lord looks like. And if exalting the Lord means humbling myself, so be it. It's not acting in an un unkingly way. It's jubilant joy before the Lord. And then we have the enigmatic statement that Michal the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, it could have been that David never wanted to be with her. In other words, she didn't have a, a chance to get pregnant from that point forward, or that this was the Lord's judgment on her. We're not told. But, of course, childlessness is not always God's judgment. As we see many, many godly couples unable to have children for long stretches of time, right? whether it's Sarah with Abram or Hannah with Elkanah or Elizabeth with Zechariah, infertility often strikes the righteous and it drives them to trust all the more in the Lord. In this instance, though, in this 
particular instance, Mikal missed out on the party and on children because she did not join David and Israel in their jubilant joy in the Lord. And that brings us to our second good thing, from a party to a promise. The Lord has given David rest from all his surrounding enemies, and and David started feeling bad about him dwelling in this gorgeous cedar palace while the ark of God was dwelling in a mere tent. Initially, Nathan the prophet, who apparently was just acting as a human counselor here, tells David to do all that's in his heart because the Lord is with you, right? But later that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and it brought David a great promise with a role reversal. You see, human reason here is trumped by divine revelation. The word of the Lord comes and the Lord says, you want to build me a house to dwell in? But I've never lived in a house. Uh, Instead, always dwelling in a tent as I moved around with my people. Over several centuries, I never asked any one of the judges to build me a house. If I wanted a nicer dwelling place, I, I wouldn't need you to do it for me. All the universe is mine. So, Explain to David that he's got our roles reversed here. I'm the one who elevated him from a shepherd boy to be prince over my people, Israel. And I'm the one who has been with you. And and I'm the one who's cut off your enemies. And I will make for you a great name among the great ones of all the earth. And I will provide a place and peace for my people, Israel so that they're no longer afflicted. And I will give you rest from your enemies. And and about the house, oh, I, the Lord, I'm going to make you a house, (laughs) a lasting dynasty for the good of Israel. When you come to the end of your life and you lie down in the grave, I'm going to raise up your biological offspring and I will establish his kingdom. Yes, your descendant will build a house for my name, but I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. As Bible readers are looking ahead to Solomon, we know that when, not if, but when he commits iniquity, the Lord will discipline him. But God's steadfast love will not depart from him in the way that God took his steadfast love from Saul. That's not going to happen. David, listen. It's great that you plan to build me a house. In fact, look at 2 Chronicles 6, 8. This is affirmed. It's good that you had this in your heart, but I'm going to make sure that your house and your kingdom are before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And your legacy is not going to be the house that you want to build for me. It's going to be the house I'm going to build for you. What a promise And what a role reversal. So we arrive at our third good thing, from a good party to a good promise, now to a good prayer. Having heard the word of the Lord spoken to him by Nathan, David simply sat before the Lord, stunned into humility, it seems. Who am I? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? From the pasture to the palace? from leading sheep to leading your own people. But that was a small thing for you, Lord. Beyond my incredible past and present, you've promised my house a great future. It's instructive for all people to consider, what what more can I say? What more can I say? 
out of your gracious, generous heart, and because of your promise, you've brought about all this greatness. You are great, O Lord God. There's none like you, no God like you. Not only that, but you chose Israel as the one nation on earth to redeem as your people. You have done great and awesome things for them and made a name for yourself by delivering them from other nations and their gods like Egypt. You have established your people Israel to be your people forever with you becoming their God. So, O Lord, please now confirm forever the word you have spoken about me, your servant, and my house. Your name will be magnified forever as the God over Israel who has established the house of your servant David before you. It's because you have revealed to me, your servant, that you will build me a house that I have found the courage to pray this prayer to you. You are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. So I'm praying that you will bring your promises to pass in accordance with your word. May it please you to bless my house so it continues forever before you. You've spoken and I'm banking on your forever blessing on my house. I realize that you are the giver and I, your servant, am the receiver here. You are God and you are doing the building here. You are God You're doing the building here. I'm just your humble, grateful servant. So maybe good things do come in threes, right? A good party with jubilant joy, a good promise with a role reversal, and a good prayer with God glorified. As we make applications to our lives, consider these five questions in closing. Number one, do we ever, like Uzzah, Think that we can relate to God in whatever way we want. We must relate to God only in the way that God has directed us through his Son, through his Spirit, and through his Word. Two, do we ever, like Michal, worry more about appearance than heartfelt worship? Our worship of God should be reverent, yes, but also grateful, admiring, even expressive, with jubilant joy. Number three, do we ever, like David, wrongly think that we're going to do something great for God? We're going to do something great for God? No, no, keep our roles straight here. The gospel is all about the great things God has done for us. God doesn't need us. We need God. And whatever we do is a grateful response to what God has already done. Fourthly, do we ever, like David, meditate on all that God has done for us? Pray as humble servants with hearts overflowing with thanks, right? Simply, perhaps, a good idea for us this week is simply sit in stunned awe in God's presence, pouring out our heartfelt gratitude. Who am I, O God, that you have done all this for me? And fifthly, How are God's promises here fulfilled in the short term and in the long term? Well, in the short term, God makes David's name great. God grants his people Israel a a period of relative peace and prosperity. God raises up Solomon from David's own body and establishes his kingdom. 
allowing him, Solomon, to build a house for the Lord's name. And when, not if, but when Solomon and future Davidic kings commit iniquity, the Lord disciplines them with the stripes of the sons of men, but doesn't take his steadfast love from them. All those short-term promises are fulfilled. In the long term, God highly exalts and bestows on Jesus the name that is above every name. Through Jesus, God will give his people an eternal rest and an eternal peace. Unlike Solomon, who disobeyed God and whose reign ended in disappointment and division, Jesus always obeyed God, and his reign never ends, and it unites people, right, from every tribe and tongue and nation. Solomon was David's son, and and he had to be disciplined with the stripes of men. Jesus is God's own son, and he never had to be disciplined, and by his stripes were healed. It all points to the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.